going to be reading this morning from 1 Kings 21. <clears throat> Getting back into the book of Kings. Looking this morning at the account, the story of Naboth's vineyard. Before we read together from 1 Kings 21, let's pray together. Prone to wander, Lord, yes, we prone to wander. Yet we know that you are prone to leading us back, taking us off the broad road that leads to destruction and placing us on the narrow road that leads to life. We pray that as we read of Ahab and Naboth and Elijah, you would cause us to forsake the way of Ahab and rather to choose the way of Naboth, the way of faithfulness, regardless of cost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings 21. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting. Feast fasting and set Naboth at a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. 
I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I am going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest of manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. You know, it's the little things in life sometimes that bring joy, uh, hot cup of coffee on a cold winter's morning or a walk on the beach, smile on a child's face, the sound of the birds coming in through the window or perhaps a vineyard. It's the little things in life. It's astounding to us, at least it ought to be astounding to us, to read what comes about simply because of a vineyard. Naboth has a vineyard and Ahab the king wants it. We can be sure that Ahab had all kinds of vineyards at his disposal. He had multiple palaces. He certainly would have had multiple vineyards. He would not have been lacking for grapes, for the eating, the pressing, or for the drinking. But this vineyard is conveniently located right next to his palace, and he wants it for a vegetable garden. And so he comes to Naboth, who owns the vineyard, and he comes with what seems to be a rather generous offer. He says, I would like to buy your vineyard from you. Or, if you prefer, I will give you a better vineyard in its place. Ahab is offering to upgrade Naboth's vineyard. Perhaps he's, he's doing something akin to if somebody came to you and said, I would like the Cape Cod you live in here in Lansing, and I'm going to give you a five bedroom mini mansion out in St. John. And oh, by the way, you'll be in the good graces of the government, so I suspect your taxes will be lower as well. He's upgrading him. It seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? Well, sure it does, except for one simple thing. It was against the law of the Lord for Naboth to sell his vineyard to Ahab. This wasn't just a vineyard. This was God-given holy land dirt. The Lord owned the land in Canaan. And it was his to give as he saw fit. And he had given each tribe its inheritance. And he had explicitly told the people not to be swapping land back and forth. Instead, they should live on the land which he had given to them. And we read just one example of this from the book of Numbers. It says, The inheritance of the people of Israel should not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel should hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. 
So Naboth, being a God-fearing man, chooses not to make a profit on Ahab's offer. Instead, he rejects Ahab's offer, even though it would have been in his financial interest. And this sets Ahab off on a path to destruction. He goes home and he sulks. He sulks because he wants that vineyard. He's like a, a young child who has a basement full of toys. I'm sure you've seen basement full of toys before. And the child has a basement full of toys and he's walking through the store and he says, I want that one. And he won't be content until he has that one. And in the moment, he forgets all about all the other that ones he's already needed and received. Ahab wants that one. And we see that his desire was more than just an innocent desire for an extra vineyard to have for a vegetable garden, but rather his desire is greed. He wanted what wasn't his, and he can't have it. Or can he? Because enter into the picture Jezebel. Anytime Jezebel enters the picture, we should hear that that ominous organ music behind us. Dun, 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 dun. This is a wicked woman, and whenever she appears, something very bad is about to happen. And she comes and she says, Honey, what's the problem? Why are you sulking? And he says, That guy won't sell me. He won't sell me his vineyard. And she says, Are you the king or what? You see, remember that Jezebel is a pagan. She's not an Israelite. She's from a foreign land, and where she's from... Kings are the law. She has refused to embrace the Israelite way of thinking where God is king and God rules over his people, even over his kings, by his law. In Israel, the law is king and the king is subject to it, but she refuses to accept this. So she says, I will go and I will get this vineyard for you. And Ahab, ever ready to let his wife wear the royal pants, lets her go and do just that. And so as we read, Naboth ends up dead. She, he ends up dead. She's taking care of Ahab's problem. I'm, tomorrow night I'm, I'm going to a murder mystery party. And my character is a 1920s mob boss. Jezebel is the mob boss of Queens. She and her cronies go and take out the one who stood between Ahab and the desire of his heart. Notice two things here. The first thing to notice is the spiral of sin. We saw this with Solomon as well. Solomon, who began so wise and had such high hopes for him, yet through his foolish mistakes, particularly with his wives, much like Ahab, he ends up in idolatry and apostasy at the end of his life. The last thing he worships recorded is idols. So too it starts out rather innocently with Ahab. He wants a vineyard. He wants it for a vegetable garden. But then that desire quickly turns into covetousness and sulking. And covetousness turns into deceit. As Jezebel puts those two false witnesses in place, and then deceit turns into murder, and murder turns into stealing. What began with a desire for a vegetable garden soon balloons into a violation of commandments 10, 9, 6, and 8. 
And then not to mention that Ahab has already violated commandment 7 by marrying a woman he wasn't supposed to marry. And then you have a violation of commandment 3 because those two false witnesses bear false witness that he had taken the name of the Lord in vain by cursing it, but they take the name of the Lord in vain as well. So all the violations of these commandments demonstrate for us that Ahab is also in in violation of commandments 1 and 2. So by my count, Ahab is in violation of eight of the Ten Commandments. One, two, three, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. And it all started with a vegetable garden. It's in spirals. and gets out of control very quickly. But then as well, before we get too carried away, we should notice that Ahab walks a familiar path. Isn't this exactly what happened with David? He saw something that he wanted. Uriah's wife, even though he already had plenty of wives. He coveted, he deceived, he murdered, and he stole. Ahab follows in the footsteps of God's greatest king before the Christ. We'll come back to David in just a little bit. But in these first 16 verses, we have just the story, no commentary, as The old show, Dragnet, would have said, just the facts, ma'am. This is just the facts. But behind these facts, lying under these facts, we see not only the spiral of sin, but we see something which is a bit eerie for us. That God's people can expect to face suffering. Even, oftentimes, suffering for doing good. And why should we expect anything else? We live in obedience to God in the midst of a world that is trapped in sin and hates God. And we see this again and again in the Scriptures, not just in the story of Naboth, but in the New Testament as well. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus says himself in Mark 13, Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. How's that for a Christian sales pitch? Maybe it's your first day here. This is what you're signing up for if you become a Christian. Right? If you went out into the streets with a message of, hey, everyone is going to hate you, sign up here. That doesn't sound quite so appealing, does it? It certainly isn't nearly as appealing as the false gospel sales pitch or the prosperity gospel. Just listen briefly to the, the, the most famous of the prosperity preachers in our own day, Joel Osteen. He pastors the largest church in the United States. A couple of excerpts from his from his book. He says, you will often receive preferential treatment simply because your father is the king of kings and his glory and honor spill over onto you. God wants to increase you financially by giving you promotions, fresh ideas, and creativity. Now, Jesus says that you're going to receive death. That's not very attractive. Osteen says you'll get a promotion. 
right? Listen, this guy says the exact opposite of what Jesus says. Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Osteen says, you will receive preferential treatment. Why is this? Why is this? Because the prosperity gospel scratches our itching ears. It's more appealing to us, even though we live in the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. But Naboth, and Jesus and Peter tell us what we need to hear. That when we meet trouble and tribulation, as Peter says, we will not be surprised. Because we have walked in very familiar footsteps. We will be persecuted. And as we see here, we will often be persecuted by governments. That's what, a, that's what Naboth was. He was persecuted by his government. The founders of our nation were wise to be skeptical, even cynical of government. And to me, it's an amazing thing that the eastern seaboard doesn't have a perpetual earthquake from the founders rolling over again and again and again, spinning in their graves of what has become of their limited government. Governments persecute Christians. We see this in communist China, where Christians are taken out of their homes, taken from their churches, thrown into prisons. We've seen this in other places, even in our own land. People who, like Naboth, refuse to profit by violating their consciences and obedience to God are drugged before even the highest courts in our nation. Governments persecute Christians, such as our lot in life. We follow in good footsteps. Abel and Naboth, Jesus, Paul, Christians can expect suffering. The author of Kings makes sure that we know exactly what happens to Naboth. He says six times in just four verses that Naboth is dead. Look at verse 13, and we'll read a little further there. Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreel that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and took possession of Naboth's vineyard. Naboth is dead. Where is God? Where is God? This man is faithful. He loved the Lord. He kept the law of the Lord, and now he's dead. Where is God? We have an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God. Is he deaf? Is he blind? Doesn't he care? Is he apathetic? Where is God? Where is God when Naboth is stoned to death? Where is God when Abel is killed by Cain? Where is God when the Hebrew babies are thrown into the Nile River to die? Where is God here when Ahab and Jezebel have Naboth killed? Where is God when his son hangs on the cross? Where is God? Well, he's right there, isn't he? He's right there. His message comes to the prophet Elijah. It's appropriate that Elijah would make an appearance today. He comes with a message of judgment. This is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? God didn't intervene to save Naboth's life. But he was, not a, he was not unaware of what was happening. He was right there 
He didn't save Naboth's life, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished either. This is the same thing we see with Cain and Abel. After Cain had murdered Abel, the Lord comes to Cain and says, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Elijah comes to Ahab. Jesus says that destruction will come on Jerusalem because of what they did to him. And that was true as well. And God will send the Christ again to bring judgment and justice to the nations. God does not promise to come in and save the day every time. God does not anywhere promise that he is going to take away all sin and suffering. God makes no promises of raises or promotions. He makes no promises that you're going to live to 105. He, he makes no promises that he's going to save you from all of the effects of sin, whether it be your own or someone else's. God makes no promises like that at all. But God does promise that he is present, that he cares, and that he knows and that he will avenge. We see this very plainly in Deuteronomy 32. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near. And their doom rushes upon them. God will vindicate his people. It may not be immediately, but God will vindicate his people. God will be just and justice will be done. But justice will be done on his own terms. Jesus says this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Naboth did this. He feared God and not Ahab. Jesus did this. He feared not Pilate or the Jews, but he feared God. And so too we must do this. God does not forget, but God does forgive. You see that at the very end of the story here. The story is brimming with mercy. As you come to the end of the story, this weak-willed, murderous, sneaky, nasty, deceitful king throws on sackcloth, lies in sackcloth, goes about mourning and lamenting what he has done. And the Lord comes to Elijah and says, Look! You see. You see Ahab. Look how he has humbled himself before me. I will not bring this disaster in his own day. And here we see a similar pattern. A similar pattern to the pattern that we saw with David. Both coveted, both deceived, both murdered, both stole, both humbled themselves. David says to the prophet Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In both cases, God shows mercy. But there is something very significantly different between these two accounts. When David was confronted with his sin, he repented and turned back with a whole heart to the Lord. 
when Ahab is confronted with his sin, he is remorseful, but then quickly reverts back to his God-hating ways. David repented. Ahab felt bad. David changed his ways. Ahab quickly went back to his old ways. David has eternal life, and Ahab is in hell. There is an eternity of difference between repenting of sin and feeling bad about sin. Ahab felt bad about sin, bad enough to put sackcloth on and cry about it, but he didn't change, and he didn't begin to love the Lord. Heaven is full of people who were sinners, repented of sin when God confronted them and turned away from their sin and turned away from it again and again and again because they loved the Lord and hated their sin even if they were drawn to their sin. Anybody can relate with that? Having to come back again and again and again. Heaven is full of people who have come back to God again and again and again and again. Hell is full of people who have felt bad about their sin but none, done nothing to put it to death. There's an eternity of difference between Ahab and David. But you still see God's eagerness to show mercy. Even mercy to Ahab. And mercy to David. The prophet Nathan says to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. Now sin is nasty. And it spirals out of control very quickly. And there are all kinds of different sins that can spiral. Maybe it starts as just a, a casual joint with some friends, and then pretty soon you're doing drugs on your own, and then you have a, a full-blown addiction. What started out seemingly so small now dominates your life. Maybe it starts as just kind of a, a casual, lustful glance. Then it's a, a few more glances of lust. Then it's occasional pornography use. And then soon you have a full-blown addiction in the destruction of, of your virtue, a controlling of your mind. Or maybe it's just taking a few bucks out of the cash drawer at work and eventually you're an embezzler. Or maybe it starts out as a casual comment about someone or a grumble about something, but soon you're defined as a gossip. You are a gossip. Sin spirals. And sin enslaves. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus saves from sin. And that Jesus has the power, that the cross has the power to break the chains of sin and bring those who were enslaved in sin into freedom in the kingdom of God. Our God saves. I heard a story that stuck in my mind. I read a story, rather, that stuck in my mind for many years. I was reading, I believe in high school, I was reading a, a book of martyrs. You would think a book of martyrs would be a very depressing thing to read, but I think actually you would find it an encouragement to your soul if you were to spend time. I was reading in this book of martyrs a particular story. A story took place in the old Soviet Union. And the old Soviet Union hated Christians because communists have no tolerance for those who will not worship the state and instead have a higher obligation. And so they came and they found this church and they rounded up all the members of this church and instead of sending them off to the work camps in Siberia as was common for them to work for a few years and then die, 
they decided they were going to break these Christians. So they took them and they stripped them naked. They put them in the dead of a Russian winter out on a frozen lake. And they left them there. Then they poured warm baths, hot baths, with the steam coming out. And they set them on the shore and they said, any of you who will renounce God and renounce Christ can come and take a bath and go free and have your life. Well, as I recall, for hours, none of the Christians would go. And then finally, one of them cracked and went running for the bath, shouting a renunciation of God and of Christ. And then perhaps the strangest of things happened. But one of the Soviet soldiers, the agents of the state, one of those who was charged with the murder of these Christians, took off his uniform, took off his clothes, and went naked out onto the lake to sit with the Christians. Because through their testimony, he had become one of them. Our God saves. Even Soviets were charged with the murder of his people. For the repentant one, God saves, whether that be David, the Soviet soldier, the frozen Christians, or you. But there will be justice as well. There will be justice for Cain. There will be justice for Judas, for Ahab, for those who slay the church, or for you, if you will not turn from sin and turn back to God. But we can be sure of this. Though, as Jesus says, in this world we will have trouble, we can be sure of this. God will vindicate his people. But on the last day, those Christians who froze to death on that lake will be demonstrated to be wise. That it will have been worth it. Isn't that the story of the resurrection? That the Jesus who was crucified in shame on the cross is raised and returns in glory. That God does not forget. God never forgets. He forgives, but he does not forget. And he never forgets his people. Jesus says to the church of the Laodiceans in the book of Revelation, he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. He does knock. And through the prophet Elijah, he knocked on the door for Ahab. And Ahab opened the door just enough to see and feel bad. But then he closed it again. And he knocked on the door through the prophet Nathan for David. And David opened the door and he saw and he was undone. And he repented. And God restored him. Don't be like Ahab. Don't be like Judas. Don't feel bad about sin and leave it there. That isn't enough. Be like David or Peter after he had, after he had disowned the Lord those three times, but then comes back. He faithfully follows Jesus again. Don't just feel bad, but turn back in a renewed faithfulness and love to the Savior. 
He will have you back. But he will have you back on his terms. And his terms are you must love him more than you love your sin. God will be just. He will not forget. He will do things on his terms in his time. But he will vindicate his people. And it will always be worth it. Even to rebuke kings or prophets. Prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S. It will always be worth it to rebuke kings or prophets to have Christ. And on the last day, those who have had Christ will be wise and most glad they did. Let's pray. God, we know that you are a God of justice, that you do not leave the guilty unpunished, that as we read of the wicked King Ahab, that indeed the dogs licked up his blood. And though not before his eyes, yet they licked up the blood of his sons and of his wife as well. We know that you did not step in to save Naboth, nor did you step in to save your son, nor any of the martyrs who sit around your throne even as we sit here today. And oftentimes we desire to have perhaps a different kind of God, a God who always saves on our terms in our time. But we repent of this as well, recognizing that you are the God who defines what is good and right. And our desire for a God who acts differently than you do is a desire for an idol, a God of our own making, of our own mind, not of you, the true God. And so we rejoice not in who we wish you were, but in who you are. A God who is just, and the God who justifies the one who has faith in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that we might follow in the steps of the faithful, follow in the steps of Abel and David and Naboth, Jesus, the apostles, and all the many who have gone before us not being surprised at the fiery trials, but instead rejoicing. We are counted worthy to suffer. God, give grace to those brothers and sisters of ours who suffer. Give them the grace to persevere. And even give grace to those who persecute them. That they might turn like that nameless Soviet soldier join with the persecuted, they might have grace and have it to the full. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.